I want to buy swaps on mortgage bonds, a credit default swap that will pay off if the underlying bond fails. You want to bet against the housing market? Yes. Why? Those bonds only fail if millions of Americans don't pay their mortgages. That's never happened in history. If you'll excuse me, Dr. Berry, it seems like a foolish investment. Well, based on prevailing sentiment of the market, banks, and popular culture, yes, it's a foolish investment, but uh, everyone's wrong. <laughs> That's a good one. This is Wall Street, Dr. Burry. If you offer us free money, we are going to take it. My one concern is, is that uh, when the bonds fail, uh, I, I want to be certain um, of payment um, in case of solvency issues with your bank. I'm sorry, are you for real? You want to bet against the housing market and you're worried we won't pay you. Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> Very, we could work out a pay-as-we-go structure that would pay out if the bonds fail, but it would also apply to your payments if the value of the mortgage bond goes up. You'd have to pay us monthly premiums. Is that acceptable, Dr. Burry? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I have prospectuses on six mortgage-backed securities all on shore. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 353, The Big Short. And this is listener request number 52, courtesy of Justin. There's definitely some history of the show and our relationship that sort of ties back to the topic of this movie, how we first came together, and I guess doing the early versions of the show which was us reviewing episodes of True Blood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we basically worked for a company whose bread and butter was something that only existed in the aftermath of the events of this film, basically. That's right. We'll get more into that probably as we go. Great to hear once again from Justin, longtime friend of the show. This is probably his fourth listener request, maybe? Third or fourth over that? the years? Yeah. One of the early... LRs. That's right. The original group. Totally. Not many of those ones stuck it out. This one is a carryover from last episode, 2015, The Big Short. This one was also nominated for a bunch of stuff that year, one of the big Oscar contenders. 
it's an interesting movie for us to try to cover. Had to try something a little different with the plot synopsis. We'll see how that goes. A lot to get into. But before we do, let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc., wherever you're finding us. As always, please send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'll be reading one here shortly from Justin. All right. If you have had a listener request already done or you have one upcoming, we would love to hear from you, hear your explanation for why you're picking that film. If you have any personal anecdotes, whatever your relationship is with it, we'd love to hear about it. Finally, Letterboxd. (laughs) Still, I guess, promoting it. Should we eliminate from the promotion, or do you want me to still say it? Well, I just feel like your level of interest in it is so zero at this point, not even diminished, that I don't know that it even makes sense. Yeah, you're probably right. But we'll say it one more time. Okay. Zach1983, Matt Crosby on there. And hit us up on X or via email if you want a free sticker, if you have questions, comments, concerns, if you want to clarify or (laughs) if you want to correct anything that we say that's wrong or provide an answer for a question we ask. And then at the end of the Carol episode, we stumbled into a new topic for our listeners to potentially contact us about and that would be if you go out and see any of the new movies in theaters or if you check out anything new on streaming you can give us a couple sentence review of it a paragraph you're a little review correspondent since absolutely i barely ever go to the theaters anymore (laughs) yeah listener recommendations so let's get into the big short 2015 directed by adam mckay screenplay by mckay and charles randolph based on the 2010 book The Big Short Inside the Doomsday Machine by Michael Lewis. Lewis revealed in an interview that Paramount Pictures allowed director and screenwriter Adam McKay to make this film only if he agreed to make a sequel to Anchorman from wow. 2004. Okay. One of McKay's most overlooked films probably, Anchorman 2. I think People, for some reason, weren't in the mood for it, maybe, it when it came out. It felt like that era had passed. Yeah, because it's not bad. I think the alternate version they then released onto Netflix, which you can now get on Blu-ray, is probably a little bit better than the theatrical one, so okay. I'm not sure why yeah. they did that. But whatever, this was the transition for McKay into yeah. non-comedic film, which just so happened to correspond with the right time in the industry because shortly after this, right, there would not really be that many comedies made in general. That's true. As um, we've already talked about recently with David Gordon Green and Danny McBride and those guys, this is a very similar world, and McKay is already jumping out of it as early as 2015. Yeah, he was ahead of the game a little bit there. Also sort of impressive the cast he was able to get on board for this Given well, his lack I of... thought about that. Okay. I'm assuming a big part of it is because Brad Pitt is producing it yeah. based off of his prior collaboration with Michael Lewis on Moneyball. True. And this definitely seemed like it was going to be positioned as a prestige type movie, a that, very yeah. current of the moment topic. And then once Brad Pitt brings on someone else that's pretty big, then everything goes from there. That's true. And a lot of times actors are attracted to work with people who are successful, even if it doesn't really 
makes sense on the surface. So the fact that McKay had several films grossing well in the triple figures box office, they probably were intrigued by that. And if there's one thing that actors like almost as much as portraying tough guys, which they like more than anything, is to pretend that they're tough, it's to pretend that they actually can be funny, too. Oh, true. And I think Gosling is actually very funny, but... I think a lot of these actors look at comedy as something that they wish they could do because it's the one thing in movies that they probably really can't. Not everyone can be funny. Well, that's true. <laughs> look at this show. <laughs> I'm just throwing ideas out there as to why Adam McKay was able to get such a big cast. I think it was a good script, too. And it, Yeah, yeah. It probably started with Brad Pitt, though, I would guess. The budget was fifty million. Box office one hundred and thirty-three point four million. Before we go any further, if you have not already seen The Big Short or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, you can check it out now, streaming on Paramount Plus. Yes, sir. That's where I got it. Those of us that still have an interest in the Champions League, still. I, have I was actually Paramount surprised Plus. they don't have this on Blu-ray. Yeah. But sometimes there's just ones that you would think that I would have, and then I just don't. It's a shocking revelation when there's a movie that you don't own on some version of. I probably do own it, actually. (laughs) The Big Short was nominated for five Academy Awards, winning one in the category of Best Adapted Screenplay for McKay and Randolph. The film was also nominated in the categories of Best Picture, which it lost to Spotlight. Best Supporting Actor for Christian Bale, which he lost to Mark Rylance from Bridge of Spies. Best Hmm. Director for McKay, which he lost to Alejandro Inarritu for The Revenant. And Best Film Editing for Hank Corwin, which he lost to Margaret Sixel, who edited Mad Max Fury Road. I'm not going to run through the 2015 movies again. They're the same from last episode (laughs) with Carol. Since Justin emailed in about his listener request, I figured we would put the email segment up top Sweet. and dive into it there. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. Justin writes, Hey, guys, I'm sitting in a hotel for work now, so I figure I would justify my choice for the listener request. In all honesty, I really wanted to request House of a Thousand Corpses, but I know not to fuck with October material. Mm. I feel like you guys could give some honest review on the artistic work of Fishboy. Well, since the listeners are paying for the listener requests, you can request whatever you want. We may not do it in October, but you can still request a horror movie. That's fine. I know. We've made people nervous. We're in people's heads now. No, I know. I'm just yeah. explaining. You don't need to worry about not taking a horror movie. Yeah, I would like to do House of a Thousand Corpses. It worked out in the end, though, because mm-hmm. he wrote this before he posted Halloween 2. So That's we true. did have yeah. a little bit of Rob Zombie coming his way. But anyway, I really enjoyed my last listener request of Cruel Intentions. I figured... A beloved by the masses. That would be right in your wheelhouse. Now I was trying to think about how I could fit in a couple of stripper scenes, Margot Robbie in a bathtub, Ryan Gosling squealing, I'm jacked to the tits, and maybe an incestuous scene. I guess three out of four ain't bad. (laughs) Well, we usually figure out a way to get the incestuous material in here. In all seriousness, though, I think the big short should be mandatory viewing for the public, especially in what seems to potentially be a repeating cycle we are entering 
besides your podcast, I listen to a lot of macroeconomic podcasts, and I think there are a lot of markers trending towards massive problems worldwide. I know. It does seem that way. It is depressing. I will say I, I did walk away after this viewing not feeling super high on life. I think the movie does a great job of explaining complicated concepts and shedding light on the corruption in the system. Since the movie, Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau have been weakened, which increases the importance of the movie as these were put into place after the American public bailed out the investment banks. Overall, I hope more people realize that it's a class struggle where there needs to be an educated proletariat class to organize against the bourgeoisie who wrote this <laughs> fucking Karl Marx. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems like society is heading towards TikTok dances and Crocs, so I'm guessing we are really heading towards idiocracy instead of having people understand concepts in books and movies like The Big Short. Well, we already covered idiocracy too, and that was also a listener request, but that wasn't Justin's, I believe. That is true. Anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys think of the film and how it fits in a larger picture. I noticed in his email signature, it said bridge inspection. Oh, yeah. Literal bridges? Yeah. He's like a civil engineer. Oh, okay. I just didn't know if that meant something different than what I was thinking, like actual bridges. Yeah, bridges. Actually, had Jeff a, bridges. a listener meetup with Justin recently, and it went well. I would never ask him about bridges, though, because I don't want to know the truth. I feel like there's... <laughs> I feel like if we knew the truth about what was going on with these bridges, we wouldn't be driving over them. <laughs> You're much more comfortable hearing the truth about the economic collapse of our country. That's no, easier. I, I, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to Justin for the email. Greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read yours on the show. If you have a listener request pending, ready to go, and we really haven't gotten any detailed explanation from you yet, that would be a perfect way to get some engagement going with the show, but it's not required. We're going to run through the whole listener request schedule at the end, including what month you're in, all that stuff, just so you know, but we'll get into that later. Greatestpod at gmail.com. Let's keep it rolling. Absolutely. With the big short. In 2013, Paramount acquired the rights to the 2010 nonfiction book to develop it into a film, which Brad Pitt's Plan B Entertainment would produce, and then in March of 2014, Adam McKay was hired to write and direct a film about the housing and economic bubble. As we mentioned, this is a pretty significant departure for McKay, and I'm not sure how much I love it overall. Mm. So if you want a hot take, here it is. This is really only the good one. The other two are not great. I agree. I really haven't... Like, I haven't watched Don't Look Up all the way through, but I was not liking it. Don't Look Up is definitely the worst. Yeah. But Vice wasn't super great either. Uh-huh. And it does trouble me a little bit that the biggest names in comedy have already abandoned the genre. And I don't really want anyone to abandon their genres that they're really good at because I happen to think that genre filmmaking is really important. And unfortunately, so many filmmakers start chasing awards. Now, that's not to say that McKay himself doesn't have a strong desire to tell these kind of stories. I really think he does. I, I think believe his that politics are yeah. pretty clear. Totally. But that pretty much takes him out of the equation, though, for a lot of the best, funniest stuff that we could potentially hope for. 
I guess you have to say though, if your heart's not in it, your heart's not in it. But I'm just remembering how we went through this with actors like Jim Carrey or whoever, right? And it can kind of get sad at a certain point when you're only chasing awards, which I do think a lot of actors end up doing. Hopefully, I'm wrong. I think that the best case scenario would be McKay repairing the relationship with Will Ferrell and getting that back up and running for a big comeback. You'd later. love to see it, yeah. But this one I do think is a, a really strong. I've just been less interested in his work after this. Screenwriter Charles Randolph, who co-wrote the film with McKay, said one of the first challenges was finding the right tone for the film. He told Creative Screenwriting, in general, it was trying to find the right tone that was slightly funnier than your average Milos Forman comedy, which is all grounded character-based, but not so satirical where you got Wag the Dog. Somewhere between there was what I was shooting for. Once I got the tone down, then I went through the plot. The market's movements provided you with an underlying plot. You make your short deal, then the bank is trying to squeeze you out, and then it all breaks loose. So that was pretty easy, and it provided character arcs against that. Two years after Randolph wrote his draft, McKay, as director, rewrote Randolph's screenplay. It was McKay's idea to include the celebrity cameos in the film to explain the financial concepts. Which I think is funny and works. It's a good companion piece with The Wolf of Wall Street, which came out a little bit earlier. They're completely different stories, and there's no central villain in this film other than the general idea of the banks and right. Wall Street and the government all colluding to fuck over the American people. <laughs> but there, it's not centralized on one person like right. Jordan Belfort. There's a lot more moral ambiguity at play, where as in... The Wolf of Wall Street, unless you're one of those bros who's going to idolize Jordan Belfort, the morality is pretty obvious. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. This one is more nebulous, more gray, because the characters that end up profiting the most from this aren't exactly doing anything illegal. Totally. And there doesn't seem to be any way for them to have stopped what was going to happen from happening. So at worst, you're basically just suggesting they profited from something bad happening, but yeah. it was going to happen anyway. I think tonally it's pretty spot on. I think the thing that's weirdest to wrap your head around as you go through it is the portrayal of the Steve Carell character. Yeah. They're trying to do a lot with him. He definitely seems to have a lot of conflicted feelings and all these reactions to things. Like He kind of is the character that we'd see ourselves like finding out about stuff and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is going on? But then he's also the guy leading team that's trying to capitalize on this right but what they're doing isn't exactly what's causing the problem totally just, the problem is there anyway so they're taking advantage of right it. Yeah. yeah it fell into their laps yeah his character is a little bit more intriguing because they do bend over backwards to make sure the audience understands his disgust and disdain for banking the banking industry wall street all of it And it's a growing disdain throughout the movie well once he realizes that his moral outrage that he's had his whole life is now justified. Right. He can't help but yeah. turn the volume up even louder because even though at the end they have that quote from his wife saying that he never said, I told you so, he definitely lives it a little bit in oh, the yeah. movie, even if he's not actually saying those words. But both this film and The Wolf of Wall Street experienced a little bit of a resurgence in the wake of what happened with GameStop and that whole stock situation, which is the basis for Dumb Money, which just came out a couple of months ago. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Dumb Money when we get to the recommendations segment. 
To explain financial instruments, the film features cameo appearances by actress Margot Robbie, chef Anthony Bourdain, singer-songwriter Selena Gomez, economist Richard Thaler, and others who break the fourth wall to explain concepts such as subprime mortgages and synthetic collateralized debt obligations. (laughs) Several of the film's characters directly address the audience, most frequently Gosling's, who serves as the narrator. The first words on the screen are based on a true story, and then we are provided with a quote from Mark Twain that says, It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Smoke? In the late 70s, banking wasn't a job you went into to make large sums of money. It was a fucking snooze. How about those mats? Filled with losers, like selling insurance or accounting. And if banking was boring, then the bond department at the bank was straight up comatose. We all know about bonds. You give them to your snot-nosed kid when he turns 15. Maybe when he's 30, he makes 100 bucks. Boring. That is until Louis Ranieri came on the scene at Solomon Brothers. You might not know who he is, but he changed your life more than Michael Jordan, the iPod, and YouTube put together. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, let's get some money in here. Let's make some money. What do you say? You see, Lewis didn't know it yet, but he'd already changed banking forever with one simple idea. The mortgage-backed security, or private label MBS. You've got your average person's mortgage. Fixed rate, 30 years. Boring, safe, small payoff, right? But when you have thousands of them all bundled together, Suddenly, the yield goes up, but the risk is still small because, well, they're mortgages. And who the hell doesn't pay their mortgage? What exactly is the credit rating on this bond? This bond, gentlemen, is AAA rated. This is exactly what the Michigan State Pension Fund has been looking for. I'll buy 20 million. Oh, come on, live a little. 25 million. (laughs) The money came raining down. And for the first time, the banker went from the country club to the strip club. Pretty soon, stocks and savings were almost inconsequential. They were doing 50, 100, 200 billion in mortgage bonds and dozens of other securities a year. And America barely noticed as its number one industry became boring old banking. And then one day, almost 30 years later in 2008, it all came crashing down. March, Bear Stearns was in a death spiral and the Fed brokered its sale. The worst well, financial crisis in modern times. times. But Certainly the largest financial taken, disaster in decades in this country today, and perhaps the end of an era in American business. In the end, Louis Ranieri's mortgage-backed security mutated into a monstrosity that collapsed the whole world economy. And none of the experts or leaders or talking heads had a clue it was coming. I'm guessing most of you still don't really know what happened. Yeah, you got a soundbite you repeat so you don't sound dumb, but come on. Our financial institutions are strong. But there were some who saw it coming. While the whole world was having a big old party, a few outsiders and weirdos saw what no one else could. Not me. I'm not a weirdo. I'm pretty fucking cool, but we'll meet again later. These outsiders saw the giant lie at the heart of the economy, and they saw it by doing something the rest of the suckers never thought to do. They looked. 
The film consists of three separate but concurrent stories loosely connected by their actions in the years leading up to the 2007 housing market crash. In order to make this easier, not only for us and going through the plot, but also the listener in terms of keeping it straight, we're going to just go one at a time. The yeah. three major players are Scion Capital, Front Point Partners, and Brownfield Capital. Scion Capital is a hedge fund run by a man named Michael Burry, as played by Christian Bale. The real mastermind here, that the initial discoverer of this nightmare. After Bale met with the real Dr. Michael Burry, he asked to have Burry's cargo shorts and t-shirt, which he then wore in the movie. Bale wow. later said he hoped Burry would make it to the film's L.A. premiere because I really want to sit next to him and see if he's going to punch me in the fucking face. <laughs> I don't know if his portrayal is particularly harsh. I know they yeah. have the glass eye thing, and we'll get more into that in a second. He seems like an eccentric dude. Yeah, but it's he's not portrayed as some sort of a monster. No, it no. seems as if he just knows this is going to happen, and he blew the whistle on it. But did he, though, I guess? That's really yeah. the only thing. He just set up a situation where he might be able to benefit from it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, well, I'm just confused as to why Bale thought that. I didn't really think it was a particularly harsh depiction or anything. I guess he kind of comes off as a weirdo. Yeah, but that guy probably is. Well, I know, but you might be offended by that. You might not know. I don't think you could be weird. that smart and not know. Yeah, I know. That's true. Bale does not share any screen time with any of the other top-billed cast members. Next is Front Point Partners, this storyline is a little confusing. It, it's launched into by Jared Vennett, who's not actually part of Front Point Partners. Jared Vennett's played by Gosling. It, it's He's based on a guy named Greg Lippman. It's mostly focused, though, on Mark Baum, yeah. who's played by Steve Carell, who's based on Steve Eisman. And then his team, which includes Jeremy Strong and that guy from Prometheus. Right who is like their optimist guy. And then I think there's another guy in their group. They only get involved with this because of a wrong number. And it piques Baum's interest as to what is that going on. So he actually looks into it, which is funny because the people that Burry is bringing this information to directly and the people that then Venet brings this information to directly do not ever look into it. Right. Have no clue what the fuck is even going on. Well, the on. banks are just happy to take their premiums. Yeah, because the people they're t saying this to, instead of raising a flag, being like, "What the fuck is going on?" They're this all this guy's like, gonna give us money. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is great. I kind of consider the front point guys. I know it's an ensemble, but I kind of consider this group to be the main characters. In a way, yeah, they are the biggest chunk. Yeah, and then uh, third is Brownfield Capital, Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley, portrayed by John Magaro, who was also in Carol oddly enough, and Finn Whitrock. Yeah, yeah. They get mixed up with Ben Rickard, played by Brad Pitt, who is a retired securities trader. These three dudes are all based on people with the same first names. It doesn't matter. You don't care. <laughs> right. Let's start with Scion. We're going to run through each of them to a certain point, and then we're going to tie it up with a bow at the end. There's only a little bit of crossover. It's all almost incidental crossover between these groups. But their stories, of course, are all intertwined and connected. They just didn't really know each other personally. Right. In 2005, eccentric hedge fund manager Michael Burry discovers that the United States housing market, based on high-risk subprime loans, is extremely unstable 
anticipating the market's collapse in the second quarter of 2007 as interest rates would rise from adjustable rate mortgages, he proposes to create a credit default swap market, allowing him to bet against or short market-based mortgage-backed securities for profit. This is what is so disturbing about this movie, and it goes back to the Mark Twain quote at the beginning, but I know some of it's just the way it appears in the movie, and this is a super smart guy, but it doesn't seem like you had to dig that far to realize that something was amiss here. That's true, but I think the underlying idea is so many people committed fraud. I know. That you were taking their word. If it says it's 95% rated, you just believed it. Because why wouldn't you? Right. Because supposedly people should be doing their jobs and doing it right, and a lot of people just didn't go back and check anyone's work, I guess. Lola FX did the special effects for Bale's Glass Eye in the film, McKay did not want it to become too obtrusive since, in reality, you're not that aware of someone's glass eye except the odd occasion when it doesn't move. So they painstakingly went through every shot to get it just right. Michael Burry named his hedge fund company Scion Capital after a favorite childhood book, The Scions of Shannara. Bale is seen reading that book in one of his earlier scenes in the film. Mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. Wall Street loves to use confusing terms to make you think only they can do what they do. Or even better, for you just to leave them the fuck alone. So here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. Basically, Louis Rainieri's mortgage bonds were amazingly profitable for the big banks. They made billions and billions on their 2% fee they got for selling each of these bonds. But then they started running out of mortgages to put in them. After all, there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Banjo. That way, they can keep that profit machine churning, right? By the way, these risky mortgages are called subprime. So whenever you hear subprime, think shit. Our friend Michael Burry found out that these mortgage bonds that were supposedly 65% AAA were actually just mostly full of shit. So now he's going to short the bonds, which means to bet against. Got it? Now fuck off. It takes Margot Robbie in a bubble bath drinking real champagne, evidently. Wow, how about that? To explain to us what exactly shorting is. I thought it was a little bit fun that Gosling's narration is introducing her as Margot Robbie, so it was sort of like Ken bringing us Barbie all those years earlier. (laughs) Shorting is explained in the bubble bath aside as quote, betting against. To explain what is actually done, shorting is simply sell high, buy low, the old adage, buy low, sell high, in the opposite order. Technically, it involves borrowing the instrument to be sold on, quote, margin or credit with interest. Then, if things go as anticipated, the price drops, hence the bet against, and it is then bought and transferred back to its lender, closing the position so you're basically 
it, how this is even legal is crazy to me because yeah, it sounds like you're just manipulating things by moving stuff around and then profiting off of whatever would happen naturally. It's so crazy to me. It is bizarre, and it does lend credence to this idea of that aren't even real becoming things that you can purchase and sell and make profit off of. Tracy Letts pops up as Lawrence Fields. He is Burry's main client and will become the face of his investors who flip the fuck out when he's going off the rails. Mm -hmm. Because what this leads to is this man who I guess is in eccentric. He wears cargo shorts, bare feet, yep. listens to heavy metal, drums. Right. Probably autistic or something, I'm guessing. He doesn't uh, yeah. seem like he's having normal interactions with other people. Locked in this office for it's seemingly days at a time. And he's in this position where he's going to go out on a limb and be the only one out there. And I did kind of feel that anxiety the first time watching this film where everyone's putting so much pressure on him and he seems like he's losing everyone so much money. The fortitude to stand firm and just be like, well, no. I'm right, and we're not selling. <laughs> I know. That part is kind of fun in the movie, that he sticks to it. I know they really dig into it, and he's just like, I just know I'm right about this. And it does seem pretty clear that he is right. But to withstand that pressure from these investors, from sort of that main guy who said that he was his mentor at one point. Yeah. And to the point that he's being sued by him. I don't know. That's a crazy amount of commitment. But I guess at a certain point, it does seem like he's so far down this road, he needs this to happen. Well, I also think that once some stuff starts happening, he knows it's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And those other people don't know yet that it's right. definitely happening. Because he can start seeing it ramp up. And I do think that it is this nerve-wracking, tenuous position to be in. But at the same time, he probably has enough experience, just like some of these other people. I think Venet's character and maybe bomb to a certain extent because he's so cynical, but these characters kind of know what's going on, whereas the investors don't. Right. They're not seeing the same signs and understanding this is about to collapse. Everyone's committing fraud now to try to cover it up, but it's definitely going to happen. I'm surprised he stayed there. I would have just started traveling around and waiting for that. To totally, yeah. <laughs> so they can't find me. Burry's long-term bet exceeding $1 billion is accepted by major investment and commercial banks, but requires paying substantial monthly premiums. It's back to the, you're basically buying insurance for something that most people believe would never happen. So you pay your monthly premiums, which become very high at a certain point. The investors start flipping out because you're basically hemorrhaging millions of dollars, waiting out a bet that a lot of people think will never happen. Right. The genius of it, though, is Burry knows that he's using their own greed against them because these banks have a total and complete lack of knowledge, a complete lack of due diligence. They look at it as he's a chump who's walked in and started offering them free money. Right. Which they say as much to him. When Michael Burry leaves the Goldman Sachs office after making the deal, you see the team laughing in the conference room and it cuts to a series of shots, one of which includes a little girl shouting, I want my money, bitch. That little girl is Pearl, Adam McKay's daughter. The quick shot is from the 2007 short film, The Landlord, which I believe is still on YouTube with oh. Will Ferrell, where that little girl yells at him. It was a pretty famous viral clip in the early days right. of the internet. 
The movie includes a short scene with Adam McKay, then moves to a longer scene where Pearl, playing the landlord, is shouting at Farrell using foul language. The short film was released through Funny or Die, a YouTube channel started by Adam McKay, Will Farrell, and a few others. It's our old pal, our narrator, someone we've become accustomed to yet don't know everything about yet, Jared Vennett, played by Gosling, never far from our minds, as he is the voice of this narration we're hearing. He'll be the first to actually understand what Burry is doing and then will verify what he's saying. As fucked up as it sounds like it is, and it is, it's not as if Burry is concealing what he's doing. Other people, if they're paying attention, can find out what he's doing. A lot of this is very public. He's not lying to anybody. Then it will eventually be the connective piece to the front point and Mark Baum. He'll also incidentally be the connecting piece to Brownfield as well by leaving the booklet in the lobby, even though we know immediately that that actually didn't happen because the characters turn around and tell us in that scene. (laughs) Yeah, which is kind of funny because that does happen for a lot of these adaptations where something that seems like it wouldn't ever be the case, you do often find out that that's not the case if you look into it a little bit. So it's kind of a cute little point that they actually call it out. It was fine in 2015. I think it's been overdone now. Sure. With these biopic cheats. Yeah, yeah. Where there's fourth wall breaking. I, Tanya, was littered with that. That's right. Interestingly enough, the same director made Dumb Money. I don't really remember there being fourth wall breaking, but maybe there may even be a little bit in Dumb Money. I can't remember. It's not my favorite thing, fourth wall breaking in general. Sometimes I think it can be really well executed, but it can definitely be overdone. Even in this movie, I don't need as much of it as there is. Well, I was thinking more from the perspective of, okay, you do it in this film, but then there's a lot more films now that try it. Vennett is the executive in charge of global asset-backed securities trading at Deutsche Bank, learning of what Burry's doing from one of the bankers who sold Burry in an early credit default swap. For Burry, he is certain he will be right, but he's going out on a limb. The investors in his hedge fund will have to pay expensive premiums until something that's never happened before, the collapse of the housing market, happens. However, Burry's course of action sparks... His main client, the aforementioned Lawrence Fields, to accuse him of wasting capital while many clients demand that he reverse and sell, but Burry refuses. I just know how to read numbers. How big's your short position right now? Uh, just the 1.3 billion. And the premiums? Well, we pay uh, roughly 80 to 90 million. <laughs> each year which is high but i was the first to do this trade watch it will pay i I may have been early but i'm not wrong it's the same thing it's the same thing mike you're managing a fund of what 555 million in six years it'll all be gone on one bet the second quarter of 07 is when the adjustable rates kick in and the defaults will skyrocket yeah says you how much is eligible for withdrawal before they do, say, in the next two quarters, if your investors panic? 302 million. I... My God, Mike. No. 
no one will pull out. That would be suicide. I mean, I'm down 17% for the year, but if they trust me and they trust me. Because no I'm one trusts you. I, I no one. Several emails to my investors, letting them know that the, the, oh, the second quarter of 07 is when our housing positions show returns. And uh, um, I've been very clear. People will withdraw their money. Lawrence, that would be so stupid. I mean, the, the, if, 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 if the fund's capitals drop too much, then the swap's contracts are voided, and then the banks uh, get to keep all of the collateral. Wait a minute. Wait. All of it. What? The contracts are voided? The contracts are voided? Holy shit! Oh, motherfucker! Michael, give me my money back. Michael, do you hear me? I want my money back. Give me my fucking money back. <laughs> you motherfucker. Bale actually learned to play drums well enough so that we could see him recreate the opening of that Pantera song. He spent a few weeks on that. Okay. <laughs> it's so weird what actors do. Yeah, I know, really. Under mounting pressure, Burry eventually restricts withdrawals altogether, angering investors beyond belief, and Fields even sues Burry. The scene of Burry composing that email is actually very funny, too, where he's telling them his life story. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> he's always <laughs> launching into this email, I was a simple man. Oh, I know. Everyone's like, oh, my God. Okay. what? Where's my money? <laughs> Yeah, we don't want to hear about your dating history. Just when it started to seem like it was never going to happen, the market eventually collapses and his fund value increases by 489% with an overall profit, even allowing for the massive premiums of over $2.69 billion, with Fields alone receiving $489 million. Yeah, I think there is something validating as a viewer you are kind of rooting for this guy when you're able to compartmentalize everything that's happening because everybody is against him and he is right. Yeah. So when it finally happens, it is like a validating moment. Yeah. Again, the people that ultimately profited from the housing market collapse don't seem to have done anything illegal. It is morally gross, but he was right. Against all mounting pressure, he holds firm, and it's impossible as an audience to not rally behind that. And then when you go a step further, and then you have a different character, Mark Baum, who we're going to get to in a minute, tearing down the banks, tearing down the institutions, and everything else, the entire movie, you can see why audience members might start looking to them as heroic, because it certainly feels like they are. Because if you want to go to the third story, it's two kids that are complete outsiders. I like the juxtaposition of having that first email where he has to completely be on the defensive and insist that they don't sell. Oh, totally. And there's this more panicked tension there behind it. And then there's that satisfying second email. That's right. That ends with, you're welcome. (laughs) There is an anxiety for me when you start seeing those emails flowing in. Of people being pissed off. Hey, I have a question. I was saying to you before we started recording that I kind of wish that there was some kind of a system in place where Burry was able to pause their withdrawals and then once the money comes in, 
give them their withdrawals but not give them any of the profit. I know. Since they wanted out before the profit <laughs> actually happened. That would have been great. Obviously, I know that that can't actually happen and he would be sued. But right. <laughs> still, you do want to have that moment where he's like, ye of little faith. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Let's move over to front point. While Michael Burry is betting against the housing market, we're introduced to Front Point Partners hedge fund manager Mark Baum, played by Steve Carell, an angry man sickened by the bank's business ethics. Our introduction to this character is all you really need to know. He bursts into this <laughs> support group. I wasn't 100% sure if this was supposed to be Rageaholics or if this was something to do with his dead brother. I couldn't I, really tell. I was thinking it was the brother, but then there's definitely, they peel away at this idea that he's really been burying what's happened there. So it doesn't seem like he would be pursuing help for it. Right. I Yeah, that's what I would think too. But would he voluntarily be going to Rageaholics that either? That seems out of character So as this well. does seem yeah. almost court mandated or something. Carell and McKay already had a pretty big connection that had spanned years. McKay was involved a little bit, I believe, with maybe producing the 40-year-old virgin. And then obviously that you have right. yeah. the Anchorman. Tie-in. So he's not only in the first Anchorman, he's in the sequel that gets made because of this movie. But I guess Carell wasn't actually considered until Foxcatcher came out. And blew everyone away, and oh, McKay wow. thought he was really great in it. Marissa Tomei plays his wife for some reason. She's only really only in like a couple scenes. House of Buys. Not buying it. <laughs> yeah. Not him with that terrible hair no. in this movie. And Marissa Tomei, just such a saint. I couldn't remember when we went back to watch this whether Carell's brother commits suicide or if he died in 9-11. Once the movie started, I was thinking there was going to be a big 9-11 tie-in with his brother, and that's not what it is. They do show a shot of the Twin Towers at one point. Well, yeah. What, during the montages? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They show a lot of different things as time passing. But anyway, Bomb is angry at the world. His brother committed suicide. There's not a ton of information. You do get the sense that it may have been tied to a financial downturn, although there is that scene when Bomb is talking about all he could think to do when his brother was in trouble was offer him money, and now he knows that that really wasn't enough, that wasn't doing anything. So I don't know. They don't get into it. Once Venet learned what Burry was up to, he used quantitative analysis to check Burry's work and verifies that it's most likely correct. Venet decides to enter the market, earning a fee from selling the swaps to firms who will profit when the underlying bonds fail. A wrong number to the wrong front point clues in Baum, whose own motivation is fortified by his general disdain for banking ethics and business models. He buys swaps from Venet, and Venet explains that the packaging of subprime loans and collateralized debt obligations rated AAA will guarantee their eventual collapse. So how many people have you talked to about this trade? A few. There's definitely some interest. Oh, my boss would have my ass. Yeah, no. You crazy, Jerry? Get lost, Fuck Jared. you. Which is why you're here talking to us, wrong number. Sounds like there's a lot of interest. All right. A few people have invited us in just to laugh at me on this deal. Is that you? No. Is that what this is? That's not what this is. That's just how Mark is. Let's see what you got. I'm sorry. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? The cologne? No. Opportunity. No, 
Money. Okay. I smell money. Okay. Chris. God damn it. Sorry. This is your basic mortgage bond. All right? The originals were simple. They were just thousands of AAA mortgages bundled together, guaranteed by the U.S. government. The modern ones are different. They're private, and they're made up of layers of tranches. The highest level AAAs getting paid first, the lowest rated Bs getting paid last, taking on defaults first. Now, obviously, if you're buying Bs, you can make more money, but they're a little risky. Sometimes they fail. Chris? Somewhere along the line, these Bs and double Bs went from a little risky to dog shit. Where's the trash? I'm behind you. I'm talking rock bottom FICO scores. No income verification. Adjustable rates, dog shit. The default rates are already up from one to 4%, fellas. And if they rise to 8%, and they will, a lot of these triple Bs are going to zero too. And that, you're too close is an opportunity. Okay, you're saying that at 8% the bonds fail and we are already at 4%? That's right. If they go to 8, it's Armageddon. Yeah, that's right. How come nobody's talking about this? You're completely sure of the math. Look at him. That's my quant. Your what? My quantitative. My math specialist. Look at him. You notice anything different about him? Look at his face. That's pretty racist. Look at his eyes. I'll give you a hint. His name's Yang. He won a national math competition in China. He doesn't even speak English. Yeah, I'm sure of the math. Actually, my name's Jiang, and I do speak English. Jared likes to say I don't because he thinks it makes me seem more authentic. And I got second in that national math competition. So you're offering us a chance to short this pile of blocks? How? With something called a credit default swap. It's like insurance on the bond, and if it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. 10 to 1, 20 to 1, no way. And no one's paying attention. No one is paying attention because the banks are too busy getting paid obscene fees to sell these bonds. But wait, you are the bank. I mean, you work for the bank. I bet your margins are pretty nice and fat. Let's not talk about my margins, by the way. Being nice and fat. That's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Aren't you the bank? I work for the bank. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right? Let me put it this way. I'm standing in front of a burning house, and I'm offering you fire insurance on it. How can these underlying bonds be as bad as you say? It wouldn't be legal. <clears throat> Nobody knows what's in them. Nobody knows what's in the bonds. I've seen some that are 65% AAA rated that I know for a fact are filled with 95% subprime shit with FICOs below 550. Get the fuck out of here. You want me to really blow your mind? When the market deems a bond too risky to buy, what do you think we do with it? Take a guess. I don't know, you tell me. All right. You think we just warehouse it on the books? No, we just repackage it with a bunch of other shit that didn't sell and put it into a CDO. A CDO? Yes, a CDO. What is that? This is where we take a bunch of Bs, double Bs, and triple Bs that haven't sold, and we put them in a pile. And when the pile gets large enough, the whole thing is suddenly considered diversified. And then the whores at the rating agency give it a 92, 93% AAA rating. No questions asked. 
Say that again. A collateralized debt obligation. It's important to understand because it's what allowed a housing crisis to become a nationwide economic disaster. Here's world famous chef Anthony Bourdain to explain. <laughs> okay, I'm a chef on a Sunday afternoon setting the menu at a big restaurant. I ordered my fish on Friday, which is the mortgage bond that Michael Burry shorted. But some of the fresh fish doesn't sell. I don't know why, maybe it just came out. Halibut has the intelligence of a dolphin. So what am I gonna do? Throw all this unsold fish, which is the triple B level of the bond, in the garbage and take the loss? No way. Being the crafty and morally onerous chef that I am, whatever crappy levels of the bond I don't sell, I throw into a seafood stew. See, it's not old fish. It's a whole new thing. And the best part is they're eating three-day-old halibut. That is a CDO. Well, I just no, need to know how these could possibly be collated. No, so somehow sorry, you're sorry, like the, the door of the explorer, and you're the first a, person a, a, who has on, found this on, thing. Hold on. So mortgage bonds are dog shit. CDOs are dog shit wrapped in cat shit. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Institutions treat these CDOs like they're as solid as treasury bonds, and they're going to zero. No, it can't be right. There, there were 500 billion in housing bonds sold last year alone. The ratings agencies, the banks, the fucking government. You're saying they're all asleep at the wheel? Yeah. My whole department's long on this stuff. They call me Chicken Little. They call me Bubble Boy. A's, zero. B's, zero. Double B's, zero. Triple B's, zero. And then that happens. What is that? That's America's housing market. Thank you. Fucking hey, Jared. Shut your fucking mouth. A lot of information to process there. Essentially, Bomb only gets involved by accident, but at the right. same time, Venet clearly needed somebody like Bomb because no one else was buying into this. Definitely. They weren't going back and checking what Venet was saying. They probably thought, okay, this is just some fucking banking Wall Street douchebag guy. Yeah. What I mean- the fuck does he know? <laughs> This is definitely the first crew that catches wind of the idea and is like, well, let's at least take a look here. Yeah, and some of the people that work for Bomb, most notably Jeremy Strong's character, are always calling him out on his shit a little bit and saying, are you sure you are not pursuing this because you want it to be true? Right. In other words, it's going to justify your feelings that you've had all along, so you're ready to believe it already. That's right. But at least eventually they get on board, too. They realize this is all true. And look- I know it's from the perspective of the movie, but it doesn't take that long for them to start being like, yeah, there's something here. (laughs) They don't have to dig that deep. No. Obviously, Matt and I don't really know anything about this stuff (laughs) because as they explain (laughs) at the beginning, people who work in this industry and on Wall Street have adopted this language that is basically designed to keep people at arm's length talking about- You don't know what we're talking about. A bunch of bullshit. All it's really- a lot of words is we're going to try to make money to doing nothing. Well, and then, like <laughs> what you find out through the movie is a lot of the things that are assigned meanings actually mean nothing. The ratings, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's all like, a big scam. Yeah. And everything was a house of cards. <laughs> it fell apart. It eventually completely collapsed. I guess you have to wonder, though, as someone on the outside just watching this, is something that the characters wrestle with, too, towards the end of the film, which is... Did they know and just not care? Because that's what 
bomb ends up thinking they knew that this was wrong and they didn't care because they knew they would get bailed out and nothing would happen because there are times especially from Venet's perspective because yeah. he is such a funny asshole he thinks everyone is just a moron and they actually don't know what they're doing which i do think a lot of the people on that ground uh, yeah. level like those douchebags in florida For that sure. we're going to get to in a second they don't understand they could, any right. of this he says that in the strip club when he's like he was lying to you, and there's like, well, actually, he probably doesn't know. <laughs> well, yeah, he says, no, the question it, Carell is asking to the other guys is, yeah. why is he confessing? Right. And the one dude's like, he's not confessing. Yeah, he's bragging. He's bragging. He just thinks this is awesome, and he doesn't even understand what's wrong with it at all. Yeah, there is some percentage of that. And then there was a bunch of small players that didn't think that they were impacting anything this big. They knew they were doing something wrong, but turning a blind eye to it well okay so let's say you're one of those guys who works at a bank who's dealing with home loans and mortgages if you give out x per month let's say i'm not even talking about ratings or potential for strength or just all of them total if a certain percentage of those fail you might not worry about it because you're like okay well two out of ten or two out of 13 i don't know something What's the big deal? But then if everyone is doing that. No, I know. Everywhere, not just at your bank, but everywhere, and all they're all going to fail, then you have a big problem. A national crisis. This system, all of these pieces of the structure feed each other, which, of course, is then when you get into the other argument of, well, then, of course, there's going to be a bailout, or else the whole, as you would say, the world is just going to become Mad Max. Jerry Griffin was an extra on set for the day. He was pulled out of the crowd to play Jared Venet's assistant, Chris. Later, his role was expanded to two weeks of filming, sharing every scene with Ryan Gosling. It's basically just Gosling telling him to shut up or yeah. something. It's always <laughs> or very that he's funny. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> too close. Yeah. <laughs> You're standing too close. <laughs> McKay has said that. Venet was written with only Gosling in mind. Bale got a ton of praise for this and obviously, as mentioned, got nominated for an Oscar. And I don't really have like a problem with it, even though I think it's a very small part. I agree. But he seems Gosling just is not celebrated and I think well, he's hilarious yeah, I in know. this movie. He is great in it. I do agree with you. The Christian Bale part, totally on board. He's good in it, as he generally is. But I just don't consider that character that Im he's important to the story, but to the movie, yeah. you just don't feel like he's that much of a player as all these storylines are unfolding. Yeah, he features way more prominently in the beginning, and then his story starts tapering off because his is just sort of waiting around. There yeah. is the mounting pressure from the investors, but once you've established that that's happening, I don't know how many scenes right. you can get out of it. They have the confrontation eventually, but it's not much. Conducting a field investigation in South Florida, the Front Point team discovers that mortgage brokers are profiting by selling their mortgage deals to Wall Street banks who pay higher margins for the riskier mortgages, creating the bubble. This knowledge prompts the Front Point team to buy swaps. This is a very haunting sequence. And for me, I think the part that stuck with me the longest, when I think of the big short, for some reason, I always think of this Florida trip. I know. Probably because this does most closely tie in with the job that we used to do where we would look at I know. broker price opinions for, which one did we work? Freddie Mac, I guess, which yeah. is mentioned by name in this movie as one of the big banks. 
but yes, I remember scrolling through pictures of empty houses that were deserted, and you would see there's that part where they go into a house, and the only thing that was gone was a TV. Yeah, I'm not saying like that exact situation, but there were like fully furnished right. places that were just abandoned. It was really alligators dark. in the pool. Yeah, <laughs> I guess the scene is really most effective though when you realize how deep and widespread this is. This is not an isolated incident this isn't one housing development in one city in one state this is everywhere right stuff like this was going on and you find out firsthand why these dipshits are targeting people that don't even speak english to to get them on mortgages they're targeting strippers the one stripper that we talked to in the film has five houses and a condo she doesn't seem to have any clue what's about to happen and you're just thinking what the fuck is going on how did anyone think this was okay and then, of course, no one ended up in jail. Uh, yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> but these guys epitomize that finance bro stereotype oh, yeah. that I think has actually kind of risen in the wake of things like The Wolf of Wall Street in this film, which is, of course, the downside of portraying things because then other idiots will think they can do it too, even though they probably won't be successful at it. But that mentality, though, is poisonous to the country in general. Well, for sure. In early 2007, as these loans begin to default, CDO prices somehow rise, though, and ratings agencies refuse to downgrade the bond ratings. Bomb discovers conflicts of interest and dishonesty among the credit rating agencies from an acquaintance at Standard & Poor's. This would be Melissa Leo, and I don't know if you picked up on the (laughs) very not-so-subtle idea of her wearing those glasses that make her seem blind. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) because she just had work on her eyes done. And then in the moment where she finally takes them off is when she's actually being real for a second and being like, what the fuck do you want me to do about this? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And it does make you wonder how many of those type of people were out there who kind of were wondering, like, is this going to all collapse at some point? They kind of knew it was, like, fucked up. Uh, Yes. I'm sure when you start doing it, you're like, look, this is relatively harmless. Where could this all lead? But over time, you have to be like, all right, (laughs) we're doing this a lot. (laughs) It's going to be a problem somewhere. Basically, the idea is if S&P doesn't give the ratings that the banks are looking for, they'll just take them somewhere else. It's a competition thing and cronyism in an industry that never had any ethics or morals to begin with. So now we're talking about straight up lying. You're convinced (sighs) the underlying mortgages in these bonds are solid loans. That is our opinion. Have you cracked the tape? Have you looked at the loan level data? What do you think we do here? You're giving these loans to anybody with a with a credit score and a pulse. Excuse me, sir. What do you think we do here all day? I'm not sure. That's why we're here. Here's what I don't understand. We check. We recheck. If these mortgage bonds are so stable, if they are so solid, check your friend. Hmm? Have you ever refused to rate? That's delusional. Georgia, we stand behind. Have you ever refused to rate any of these bonds upper tranches triple A? Can we see the paperwork on those things? Oh, I'm under no obligation to share that information with you. Just to answer the question, Georgia, can you name one time in the past year where you checked the tape and you didn't give the banks the AAA percentage they wanted? If we don't give them the ratings, they'll go to Moody's, right down the block. If we don't work with them, they will go to our competitors. Not our fault, simply the way the world works. Holy ah, shit. Yes, now you see. And right. I never said that. They're what? selling ratings for fees. 
They rig and shot. You can afford to make less, make less. Nobody said that. And it is not my decision. I have a boss. Are you kidding me? Yeah, how'd your boss do? No, I am do not kidding you. How'd your, bo how'd your boss do? I am not in the idea. habit of kidding. Is that the angle you're taking? Well, so now anyone you who has a boss just work for can't be held responsible for doing shitty and illegal things. What are you for? No, I am not for, Mr. Baum. I am not. No, and I wonder. I wonder what your incentives might be. Is it maybe in your best interest to have the ratings change? Is it perhaps? How many credit default swaps do you own? Hmm? It doesn't make me wrong. No. It just makes you a hypocrite. I can't really explain this stuff because I barely know any of it. And I don't really understand a lot of it. But essentially, people are deciding to invest their money based on these ratings. And then if the rating is a lie, they're just throwing good money after, some, after shit, basically. This mm -hmm. is never going to pay out and it may not be worth shit. And... Unfortunately, that was happening to tons of people. Totally. I did think it's crucial, though, to point out that Melissa Leo's character eventually refers to Bomb as a hypocrite. For sure. Which we're all thinking it a little bit because of how much of a... <laughs> Her point is basically, how is what you're doing any different? You're financially invested now, so you want me to come and change these ratings to be lower so that you can get money. Right. How's that different from what the bank is doing? They want me to change these ratings to be higher because they're financially invested in this. Yeah. If you were coming just as a concerned citizen with no financial interest, then, you know, congratulations, you're a hero. But you're only here because you're realizing that you might not get the money you think you're getting. <laughs> and he does have this holier-than-thou, whatever, approach to everything that he's talking about. Yeah. Even he does have And he doesn't this. have an answer. He his face kind of knows, like, yeah, I know. Yeah, this right. is a gross business that yeah. we've entered into yeah. right now. Venet invites the team to the American Securitization Forum in Las Vegas, where Baum learns from a CDO manager that the market for insuring mortgage bonds, including synthetic CDOs, which are bets in favor of the faulty mortgage bonds, is significantly larger than the market for the mortgage loans themselves, leading a horrified bomb to realize that the entire world economy is set to collapse. This is a particularly hard concept at first, which is eventually explained to us by Selena Gomez. But I kind of love the way that they do it, which yeah, is they too. have all of those side bets going on when she's playing gambling at a table, right. and then they're acting like, okay, in this scenario, she has an 80-something percent chance to win. So logically, if you were going to make a bet on her playing that hand, you would want to bet in favor of her. And then a bunch of other bets go around and you have this web that could all collapse if she loses her bet, which she's not supposed to because she's an 80-something percent chance of winning, but what if she does? And that's almost giving them too much credit, though. That's almost acting like yeah. they were leaving something to chance. It doesn't even feel like they left anything to chance. It feels like this was definitely going to happen, right? and they fucked it up so bad. Yeah. But... One of my favorite scenes, the Q&A where Mark Baum interrupts yeah. and keeps asking questions, and then his cell phone rings, and then he's like, wait, hold on, I have to take this, yeah. and walks out of this big auditorium. Especially because you get the Gosling scene of him being like, don't make a scene here. We're here to like get information and have some conversations. Well, like Venet is definitely just straight profit. Yeah, yeah. He knows these people are crooks, and he wants to be a bigger crook, basically. Right. Even though he's not doing anything illegal, he just wants to profit from it. 
he doesn't want Bob to get on a soapbox and start telling everyone how wrong they are because yeah. it might affect how much money they can make. <laughs> but of course, Bob can't help himself in immediate. Doesn't even wait for the Q and A. Is just like interjecting during like the opening remarks. Richard Thaler played himself as the economist at the casino who explains with Selena Gomez how derivatives can gear into each other and fail in sequence. Thaler is a well-known academic economist and the author of Nudge. Okay, so here's how a synthetic CDO works. Let's say I bet $10 million on a blackjack hand. $10 million because this hand is meant to represent a single mortgage bond. Okay, Selena has a pretty good hand here, showing 18, dealer showing seven. That's a really good hand for Selena. Good odds. In fact, her chances of winning this hand are 87%. So, my odds are good. I'm on a winning streak. Everybody in this place wants to get in on the action. How could I lose, right? Now, this is a classic error. In basketball, it's called the hot hand fallacy. A player makes a bunch of shots in a row. People are sure they're going to make the next one. People think whatever's happening now is going to continue to happen into the future. During the real estate boom, markets were going up and up, and people thought they would never go down. So people who are watching and think that I won't lose will make a side bet. Now, this is the first synthetic CDO. I love Selena Gomez. I bet you 50 million she wins. And I'll give you a three to one odds. Three to one odds? Okay, I'll take that bet. Now, Somebody else is going to want to make a bet on the outcome of their bet. 50 million she wins. That will lead to synthetic CDO number two. Hey, I bet you 200 million that lady in the glasses wins that bet. She probably will win. So I want a great payoff. About 21. Deal. And this will go on and on with more and more synthetic CDOs. And we can transform an original $10 million investment into billions of dollars. In the original script, the celebrity cameos were different. Instead of Margot Robbie explaining MBS and shorting in a bubble bath, it was scripted as Scarlett Johansson standing under a waterfall. Instead of Selena Gomez explaining synthetic CDOs, it was to be Beyonce with the assistance of her husband, Jay-Z. Oh, that would have been fun. Jay-Z was even scripted as saying losing the bet was a, quote, hard knock life in reference to his song. Okay. An immediate no was on that (laughs) response, I'm guessing. But I think it is a brief but memorable appearance from Selena Gomez, and I was happy to see her in this. Did you notice when they were showing those billboards Hmm. out of Vegas, there was Martin Short? I didn't. Oh, only murders in the building. Big Short. Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking that was intentional. Okay. Bomb finally has the emotional breakdown about his brother... I'm wondering if that was a little bit more Hollywood than reality. It just seemed to coincide with the right moment of stress during this whole thing. It felt a little cinematic. It feels more cinematic than any other scene in the movie. Yeah. It stands apart. I think it's a good scene, but it does feel clunky because it doesn't feel like it fits into everything else. Yeah, the movie is bordering on infotainment where you're not heavily invested in these people right. and their lives or their personal well, stories. Well, a lot of the characters don't have that much depth. Right. Which is what kind of makes the Steve Carell character weird in the movie, but then this scene is a whole other level. I don't think that it would be beyond the pale to suggest that the movie wants us to think his brother committed suicide because of the industry. They never say that. That's right. <laughs> but 
there's something to... I feel like that's what they want you to think. I, I don't think know so. if his brother really did commit suicide because of that, or probably not. There's probably a lot of factors. Well, but... and how Bomb is so disgusted with himself that the way he thought to solve it would be to like throw money at it. The fact that he's... Yeah, that does suggest, though, that it isn't just the industry. I, I think it's this idea of these gross capitalist approach that's yeah. gone immoral... It's the industry, but it's just this darkness around everything. Yeah, I think That's it's I a think. factor, but I, I, I just don't think there's any real well, sure. reality where that that's the only reason. And I think that's why he's thinking yeah. money is just a stupid thing because he's thinking, oh, you got fucked over. And no, you're dealers. right. Anybody that's dealing with any mental illness challenges, money is never going to be a solution for it. As the subprime bonds continue to fall, Baum learns that Morgan Stanley under whose umbrella FrontPoint operates, had also taken short positions against mortgage derivatives. However, in order to offset the risk and the monthly premiums, it had sold short positions in higher-rated mortgage derivatives. Now that these are also collapsing in value, Morgan Stanley is facing severe liquidity problems. That scene at the restaurant in Vegas when Carell is learning about this stuff and that guy is such an asshole and he's talking about a $15 billion exposure. And right. It's so horrifying but also hilarious because there's so many cutting to Steve Carell reactions, not only in this scene but during any of the front point sequences. A lot of the movie yeah, is that's panning right. to Carell yeah. having a face of someone who just found out their dog was Stunned. brutally murdered. Right, exactly, yeah. Stunned, horrified. Angry, disgusted, scared, confused, Mm -hmm. blown away. (laughs) Despite pressure from his staff to sell their position before Morgan Stanley collapses, Baum refuses to sell until the economy is on the verge of total annihilation, making over $1 billion in their swaps. Even so, Baum laments that the banks, as well as the government, will not admit to what caused the economy to collapse but will instead thrust the blame onto, quote, immigrants and poor people, which is what they always do. Yeah, it is crazy. It felt like kind of a little bit of a stretch. I did 100% agree with him in saying that it's the American taxpayers and thus the regular people out there who are going to have to foot the bill for this. I thought saying that they're going to blame immigrants and poor people, it just seemed like something weird. I don't know that he would actually say that, but... Yeah, I know. It just felt like a little strange to blurt that out at that particular moment on the phone yeah, after you just right. cashed out your billion dollars or what have you. But whatever, <laughs> yeah. it's a movie. McKay encouraged improv throughout the film wherever possible, and I thought that that was such an insane thing to learn because I can barely even get through these notes without stumbling over no, all these words and shit. I don't know how you would improv in this movie. I guess there are certain things you have to make sure are said to make the information as accurate as possible i didn't really do a whole i guess post-mortem for the notes when we get to the end it's just sort of the end but i do know that the reception was so strong to this movie but also a lot of experts went through and analyzed it and they were like over 90 percent is accurate it's a very accurate movie to how things happen and the way that they are the information that is dumped on you is real yeah and it is a lot we should talk about that a little bit there is like an overwhelming amount of explaining and even though they do it in fun ways at times i mean it was helpful for me 
to get ready to do this, watching it one and a half times, like going back and watching the first half again, helped me make sure I understood how all the pieces were fitting together. Yeah, it's super complicated. I don't really think we really get it other than the system is fucked. Regular well, people can't win. Yeah, and, and I definitely corrupt. don't get it all. But one of the things that you do get is there is a bunch of, it goes back to that like terminology, there is a bunch of chuffa. <laughs> There's stuff that doesn't actually matter that's right. said too mixed in. Yeah, it's just a lot of word salads and different names for things to try to throw you off as to what they're doing because they don't want you to actually realize how fucked up this all is. Right. And I'm saying even when it works, even when it's right, I still think it's fucked up. I yeah. think the whole thing is fucked up, but this isn't the forum to launch into a, a toppling the government, <laughs> although Justin's email was verging in that direction. I think Carell is pretty good in this movie. It goes back to what Randolph was saying about the tone, because if you don't have Carell and Gosling putting in some comedic relief, but nothing over the top, nothing like Anchorman or totally. straight parody yeah. or anything. It's all very real still, but there are moments of comedic It beast. gives it some levity for sure, which because it would just be so dark and haunting. Well, also, this will come up more when we get to Dumb Money, but... When you deal in these topics, you need to have something that propels the viewer to want to keep watching and see what's going to happen. And when it's just a bunch of very complicated jargon dumped on them, that can be hard. And this movie does have that rock and roll pace, which I do think makes it comparable to The Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street is definitely way more entrenched in debauchery and things oh, like absolutely. that. But, so that will obviously keep the appeal going the whole time. It's not a bunch of explanations as to what they're doing but they took that mentality a little bit into this is it as, as fun and exciting as the wolf of wall street no but it takes a story that really should not be a movie and makes it a pretty compelling movie now where are you with Carell's performance it's the anchor performance of the movie for me it's the only character that you really feel like you can connect to in any way so I think it's good. I, I do think that there's times where you struggle to really fully feel like this is all believable because what, what do you mean that he is in control of the situation that he's in control of, but then also acts so victimized and appalled by everything? Well, I do think his anger is not on behalf of himself. Yeah, that's true. He's one of the people that thinks that he knows, so it's not going to affect him because he knows about it. He's talking about the people who are being suckered into these mortgages. Because essentially what's happening is they're capitalizing on a lie. For sure. Which is the American dream. He's mad about the lie. <laughs> the American yeah. dream is a lie if your American dream includes owning a house you can never yeah. afford. It's the same thing when you get talked into stupid shit when you're getting a new cell phone and all of a sudden they're claiming your bill is going to be exactly the same as it was before and then your bill comes and it's forty dollars more somehow and there's no explanation for why they just straight up lied to your face yeah. it happens constantly because salesmen will do anything to get a sale and that's all these people know i know so they basically turn the idea of a like we have to do this because we can get ten thousand dollars to dump out this mortgage onto this person who will never be able to pay it and well, this is the stuff when I walk away at the end of this movie and just, I really don't feel good. Just an FYI, more information dumped onto you. In the big short, there are three types of mortgage bonds. Subprime mortgage bonds, SMB, is the most basic of the three. 
It's only home loans. The next is mortgage-backed security, MBS. This is the tranches of loans that is backed up, and all the loans in it are given a AAA rating. This means if you short the bond, it has a very low risk of defaulting. You will get paid first, but not earn as much money. And the final one, known as MBS on steroids, (laughs) is a bond called Collateralized Debt Obligations, CDO, which are loads of loan-backed security, so not specifically home loans and mortgages. The CDO thing is definitely the thing that seems to have fucked us the most because at the end of the film they tell us that they went back to selling these but just called them a different name. Yeah, right. It's a- <laughs> the idea of these subprime with adjustable rates, we're betting on people are all of a sudden going to be able to pay way more money several years down the line. It seems like a crazy idea to begin with. You know that this is going to fail when you're rolling this out. I guess they didn't think it would matter or yeah. care. I don't know. <laughs> that brings us to our third portion of the film, which focuses on Brownfield Capital. JP Morgan Chase. JP Morgan Chase. Okay. JP Morgan Chase. Stop JP saying Morgan Chase. JP Morgan Chase. I got a good feeling about this. Just a meeting, though, you know? It's, not, it's just a meeting. It's like. People have meetings all the time, you know? People drink their coffee, they have a meeting. Brownfield funds? Yes. yes. Hey. Hello. Ted. Chris. Chris. I'm on Ted's desk. Okay. Oh. I'm Charlie. I'm Charlie Geller. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie Shipley. Hi. Yeah, we're, we're, we're so excited to get set up on your trading platform. Cool. Here, uh, have a seat a second. All right. So, uh, Ted had asked me to do some meeting prep, but I, uh, I couldn't find any marketing material on you guys. Oh, uh, we just moved here from Boulder. Yeah. yeah. Well, can we see some of your offering documents? Well, Brownfield is its own money. It's our money. Yeah. Well, can you tell us how much you manage? Of course. We're doing $30 million right now, um, but we started four years ago with 110000 Wow. So, as you can see, that's pretty phenomenal pretty returns. Good. We want to get an ISDA agreement with J.P. Morgan so we can uh, deal in long-term options. That's really cool. Yeah. That is so cool. Thank you. But uh, you guys are under the capital requirements for an ISDA. By how much? Uh, how much? Uh, 1470000000 so. A lot. This makes us look bad, doesn't it? That we didn't know what the capital requirements were? Uh, it's not great. But, uh, keep up those returns and, uh, give us a call way down the line, you know? <laughs> okay? Okay. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one, guys. Thank you, Chris. What? Mm-hmm. Who the fuck oh, schedules a meeting God. at 4.50 in the afternoon? Painful. Dude, B of A and Bear didn't even return our calls, and even fucking Wachovia blew us off, I know. man. Here's the prospectuses of all the other losers who didn't make it past the lobby. I don't think I can do this anymore, you know? I'm young yet, I can still do something with my life. I miss Colorado anyway, the weed's better. Gentlemen. I need you to leave. Yep, yep, we're going. Let's go. Look at this, look at this. This guy says that the housing market's a giant bubble. 
Okay, so this part isn't totally accurate. You know, we didn't find Jared Bennett's housing bubble pitch in the lobby of a bank that rejected us. The truth is, um, a friend had told Charlie about it, and I read about it in Grant's Interest Rate Observer. This is crazy. This is crazy stuff. Shit, he's saying that there's 10 to 1 returns on credit default swaps for mortgage-backed securities, and the whole housing market is about to collapse? For Jamie and Charlie, the housing market doomsday prediction was music to their ears. I'm so happy, cause today I found my friends, they're in my head. They had started working out of Jamie's garage with 110,000 Jamie had saved, taking sailboats up and down the East Coast. Our investment strategy was simple. People hate to think about bad things happening, so they always underestimate their likelihood. Their strategy was simple and brilliant. What he said. Jamie and Charlie found markets will sell options very cheaply on things they think will never happen. So when they were wrong, they were wrong small, but when they were right, they were right big. Within a few years, they had turned 110 grand into 30 million. But then it was time to go to New York City, and so far, it wasn't going very well. So what if it does seem interesting? No, no bank will give us our ISDA. We're dead in the water. These kind of trades are totally out of the question. You gotta call Ben. Let's call Ben. Ben Ricker was a former trader in Singapore for Chase who quit the whole game in disgust. He just happened to be Jamie's neighbor when they were in Colorado and they met walking dogs. But Ben was dark. He didn't just think the whole system would fail. He thought the whole world was going down. That's salads. Oh, good. You know, every one of these vegetables is fresh from my garden. You guys should start your own garden. What you gotta do is get your soil off petrochemicals. Mm. I used wood ash and urine, help restore the soil, creates ammonia nitrate. Seeds are gonna be the new currency. And not those frankenseeds from Monsanto. I'm talking about good, healthy, organic seeds. Make yourself a garden, learn to live off the land. Ben had real experience in a big bank. Jamie and Charlie had never even been in a Manhattan bank bathroom. But Ben was done with the banking world. He was very clear. Right. I realize that. Let's crunch some numbers and then maybe we'll talk about we're calling crunch the numbers. Bank. We always crunch the numbers. When haven't we crunched Seriously, the numbers? Guys? We're going to crunch the numbers like. I need you out of here. Of course. We're, we're, yes, ma'am. We're going. Second. We're going. At the same time that Bennett was taking his pitch around town, two young investors, Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley, who run a small firm called Brownfield Capital, based on the firm Cornwall Capital have come from Colorado to New York and are trying to break into the big leagues. They accidentally discover a marketing presentation by Vennett on a coffee table in the lobby of a large investment bank. The characters address the audience directly and explain that in reality, they had heard about Vennett's plan through word of mouth from friends and publications. So if it's making publications, people knew that this was right. a thing people were doing and still didn't go in and look and see if this is going to happen. I because I don't think a lot of people even would know how to do that. And I don't think a lot of people understood what was actually happening. No. Most of the people in this industry had no idea. Right. There's even that line where Rickert talks to somebody at a bank about CDOs, and they, had, they didn't even know what it was. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck is that? It is that weird thing in this movie, though, where if you're going to address that this part isn't true and something else actually happened, then wh why even do it this way? Well, how long would that take, though, to no, have them I know. convinced? I guess you could just show them finding an article somewhere, but yeah. that wouldn't be that exciting. They wanted to show them as outsiders, which is what right. this scene establishes, because they think they have a meeting 
at what, whichever bank it was. It's really late on a Friday. They don't actually meet with the person. It's one of their assistants, and it's in the lobby. Yeah. So in that sense, you understand who they are, and then they just so happen upon this material, and it's enough to convince them to invest in swaps as it fits their strategy of buying cheap insurance with big potential payouts. Below the capital threshold for an ISDA master's agreement or an ISDA required to enter into trades like buries and bombs, they enlist the aid of Ben Rickert, played by Brad Pitt, a retired securities trader who was based in Singapore, who just so happened to have been a neighbor back in Colorado. As I said, there's already a little bit of an ingrown connection there with Brad Pitt and the Michael Lewis material with Moneyball. One of the more hilarious anecdotes that is out there on IMDb is talking about how Conan O'Brien was up for the part of Ben Rickard and oh, wow. auditioned okay. extensively and all this stuff. And it's just listed as if it's true Yeah, on IMDb. And I'm looking at it, and I'm just thinking, there's no way this is real. This is definitely a bit. Right. And I looked into it, and it isn't real. And it is a bit. And yeah. I don't know why people take that shit and then just put it on IMDb as if it's true. Okay. I think McKay was on Conan O'Brien's podcast, and they did a whole bit at the beginning about how this was like real and- Okay. Conan was up for this part, but I think it was pretty clear yeah, that they yeah. were joking. The idea of Conan O'Brien and Brad Pitt being a, Going up for head the same to head. part, yeah. it just seems like, okay, we're clearly making a joke here. Yeah. I do like this Brad Pitt performance. It's sort of understated for him. Yeah, he's got a little bit of that first act, Tyler Durden, Yeah, where he just seems so above it. He's answering the phone, chewing, that kind of a thing. Right. It's very familiar. I thought it was a little surreal, though, because they he's supposed to be a, a weirdo. Yeah, that's a little bit tough. And it was wild seeing him walk around with a mask. Yeah. And this is taking place in 2006. I know. In that moment. Right. And I know that people in Asia and other places it's have more normal. masks. Yeah. But it definitely stuck out because this movie came out before COVID and had nothing to do with COVID. And it just was a different time. But yeah, I'd love for something like this to happen to me where you could do something but then be rich enough to walk away from it, disgusted, but never having to get involved in this stuff again. Although he does. <laughs> yeah, and you do wonder if his motivation is similar to Bombs. I, that's the way I take it. He never really says that, but he just figures these guys are getting caught with their pants down. Let's take advantage because who cares? Fuck them. Yeah. Because unlike The Wolf of Wall Street, the money isn't coming directly from regular poor people, yeah. but they are, of course, still the ones that are most greatly affected. It's it's yeah. weird. And I guess, I don't know, the way that the Brownfield dudes are, th- there's something that seems more noble about these two guys than everybody else. Because they're true outsiders. They yeah. didn't have enough capital to even be considered like real traders. Part of this circle. Yeah. You need um, to be working with hedge funds in the billions, and these guys had like thirty million, which is crazy that they I know. made that themselves. But they need like the number that guy gives them. They would need to get to one point five billion. Yeah, something like to get that. An ISDA, which is insane, and it factors into dumb money too, because you realize that this idea of the free marketplace, the stock market where everybody has a chance, you really don't, and it is rigged against the people that already have all of the money and technology to totally. win. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> So yes, in a way, these guys do feel like underdogs and heroes, even though, just like everyone else, they are profiting off of something where tons of people are going to lose their jobs and lose their homes. And they do have that wake-up call in Vegas when 
Rickard says to them, do you know that for every 1% of unemployment that equals, what did he say, 40,000 deaths or something, something like that, for every yeah. 1%? And they're just kind of like, oh. Because <laughs> they're dancing around. They're so excited. No, I know. Which I would be, too, because you're caught up in it. You're thinking, we've gamed the system legally, and totally. we're going to come yeah. out on top now. And you kind of forget the human toll of what you're doing. But they're not, again, they're not actually doing it, but you know what I mean. The quotation that appears on the screen, truth is like poetry, and most people fucking hate poetry overheard at a Washington, D.C. bar, was actually written by McKay after unsuccessfully searching for the perfect quotation to use for the segment. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I can't find the type of quote I'm looking for, so I'm going to make it up and act like it's a quote that's just out there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something we would do for the spot. Totally. When the bond values in CDOs rise, despite more and more people defaulting on their loans, Geller suspects the banks of committing fraud. Even though Shipley is freaking out, Geller's first instinct is to double down and buy in even more. Because he realizes that if his hunch is true, meaning he's right from the get-go, and uh-huh. they're still doing this, that means it's only going to be worse <laughs> because they're committing <laughs> even more fraud now. No, right? Just like the Front Point partners, this trio, Geller, Shipley, and Rickert, also visit the American Securitization Forum, where they learn that the SEC has no regulations to monitor mortgage-backed security activity. This person is portrayed by Karen Gillan. There's a lot of random faces, recognizable people popping up for one or two scenes. Yeah, her character's sort of a it's a strange portrayal here like I think they just want to show how oblivious the people that you think are protecting you are. Yeah. Like more interested in dating someone. <laughs> yeah, they're just not even paying any attention. And again, it ties in with dub money where so clearly fraud is being committed and all kinds of terrible things are happening by the people that are supposed to be protecting our money who are basically controlling our economy and then nothing happens there's Mm -hmm. no consequences no one seems to care because they know that the taxpayers will just bail them out and what ends up being truly a stroke of genius they end up shorting the even higher rated double a mortgage securities as they were considered highly stable and so would carry a much higher payout ratio brownfield capital ends up with even more profit than bury or bomb which I didn't really fully understand that sentence, but that was something I saw. I'm wondering if they mean personally these two guys, because a lot of the profit, quote unquote, that Bury and Baum make is tied up with investors who actually are getting that money. It's not all personal wealth. Oh, sure. These yeah, guys, right. it does seem like their own money. That was I guess they probably me. got investors at some point, but they said that they had a hundred something. That it started with theirs for sure. And then they got it up to $30 million. So in that sense, I think maybe personal profit, they may have actually made the most just as two people. Well, that is true, yeah. But I'm not 100% sure because I think they could have made even more, but they decide to cash out a little earlier than Bomb does because they really don't know what the fuck's going on. And there's Seriously. always a risk, too. Like You can't hold on forever because if the bank that's holding your notes completely collapses... Yeah. then you're, you're not going to get that money. Right. It's just gone at that point. Even bear up their prices. And they keep calling this brown hole. Just don't have the money or the reputation. Don't take it personally. I don't think I have this trip club in me tonight. I'm just going to get some ginger ale, watch some pay-per-view. I'll book us some flights after the morning. 
deal. We need a deal, right? A deal. Um, we need a deal we can afford. We need a deal that they're, they're not going to refuse. So what can we do? We can... The double-A tranches. What if we bet against the double-A tranches? Who's not going to take that bet? We know that they say they're 95% triple-A rated, but in reality, they're more like 25%. Some of them are 0%. We also know that if the bottom tranches fail at over 8%, the upper tranches are affected, they go to zero. I'll bet you right now that those double A's are actually like B's. I rarely ever say these words, but I think Charlie's right. Look, Ben, the payoff is 200 to one, but they're all taking the ratings at face value. So they're charging pennies on the dollar to bet against the double A's. Just when I started thinking you guys are clowns, no one on the planet is betting against double-A. The banks will think we're either high or having a stroke, and they'll take every dime we have to offer. Kind of brilliant. <laughs> this is what we did that no one else thought of. Not even Bomber Berry thought to short the double-A's. But we did. Little brown hole capital. So we're interested in shorting some of the double-A tranche of uh, CDOs. Come on, guys, what's the angle? I've got no angle. We're new to this. We're just so excited. we want to do 15 million in swaps on the double A tranche. I don't understand. You can buy as much double A tranche as you want. <laughs> 40 million against the double A. Brother, I will sell you as much as you want. You understand perfectly, Bob. You want the deal? <laughs> That's cool. That's all right with me. He's gone. Oh. Don't do that. Stop. Stop. Stop that. Charlie. Oh. Stop it. Stop. What? Do you have any idea what you just did? Well, come on, we just made the deal of our lifetimes. We should celebrate. You just bet against the American economy. Fuck yeah, we did. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Which means, oh. which means, <laughs> if we're right, if we're right, people lose homes, people lose jobs, people lose retirement savings, people lose pensions. You know what I hate about fucking banking? It reduces people to numbers. Here's a number. Every 1% unemployment goes up, 40,000 people die. Did you know that? No. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. We were just excited. Just don't fucking dance. All right. Where are you going? Whoa, I just got really scared. Later, as home mortgage defaults increase, the price of the CDOs, the insurance against, does not rise, nor does the price of the underlying mortgage bonds drop, and they realize the banks and the ratings agencies are secretly freezing the price of their CDOs in order to sell and short them before the inevitable crash. Outraged at the bank's cheating, Geller and Shipley try to tip off the press about the upcoming disaster and the rampant fraud, but a writer from the Wall Street Journal reveals his own personal conflict of interest and will not do his job, of course, as to endanger his relationships with the Wall Street investment banks. It is tough, though. It's so easy to criticize these people, but... No, this guy you should criticize. Yeah, I know, but I, I look, to some degree you have to understand people's livelihoods, though. Yeah, but... If, if you're a member of the press, this is what you're supposed well, to do. Well, that is true, yeah, I know. Well, the, look, we know the... We know the media is increasingly more biased by the day. No, I know, but I'm saying... Yeah, I know. That is... He ultimately would have been fine. Because True. Because all of the people It's that not like been... everything went away. Yeah. 
probably thinking like if I bury Wall Street, what am I going to do? Well, be write a villain. A, write a book. <laughs> yeah. As the market starts collapsing, Ben on vacation in England sells their swaps. Ultimately, they turn their 30 million investment into 80 million, but their faith in the system is broken when Ben tells them of the severe consequences for the general public. And so one day, despite the lying, denial, price freezing, fraud, and straight-up ignorance, it all could no longer be manipulated or concealed, and the shit hits the fan. It ends up being a series of hollow victories and even a little sullen I told you so's because the real-world consequences are daunting, and no one can really celebrate too much. Yeah, I know. It is a weird, conflicted feeling. If the world is in shambles, then what good is all the money in the world? Well, it ended up not happening, so it's even better. Yeah, I know. After that bailout, that money that these guys got had to taste even better. Anyone who knows me knows that I have no problem telling someone they're wrong. But for the first time in my life, it's not so enjoyable. We live in an era of fraud in America. Not just in banking, but in government, education, religion, food, even baseball. What bothers me isn't that fraud is not nice or that fraud is mean. It's that for 15,000 years, fraud and short-sighted thinking have never, ever worked. Not once. Eventually, people get caught. Things go it's fucking south. plummeting, man. It's fucking plummeting. When the hell did we forget all that? I thought we were better than this. I really did. And the fact that we're not doesn't make me feel all right and superior. It makes me feel sad. Every time I fucking hit refresh, it's dropping, man. And every time it goes. And as fun as it is to watch pompous, dumb Wall Streeters be wildly wrong, and you are wrong, sir. I just know that at the end of the day, average people are going to be the ones that are going to have to pay for all of this. Because they always, 32? always do. It's 32. Yeah, it's fucking it's tight, That's my two cents. Thank you. Drop a deuce at Deutsche. Does our bull have a response? Only that in the entire history of Wall Street, no investment bank has ever failed unless caught in criminal activities. So, yes, I stand by my Bear Stearns optimism. Uh, Mr. Miller, I'm sorry, quick question. From the time you guys started talking, Bear Stearns stock has fallen more than 38%. Would you still buy more? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course I'd buy more. Why not? Boom! Jared Bennett receives a bonus of $47 million for all his swap sales. Mark Baum becomes more gracious from the financial fallout, and his staff continue to operate their fund. Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley what? go their separate ways after unsuccessfully trying to sue the ratings agencies, with Jamie still running the fund and Charlie moving to Charlotte to start a family. Oh, nice. The Carolina Crosby's down there. Ben Rickert returns to his peaceful retirement. Michael Burry closes his fund after public backlash and multiple IRS audits, now only investing in water securities. The personnel of the banks responsible for the crisis escape any consequences for their actions, with the single exception of one trader, Kareem Sereljan. It is noted that as of 2015, banks are selling CDOs again under a new label, Bespoke Tranche Opportunity. 
Anything that has the word bespoke in it, you should probably just avoid. Uh, I'd say so. As a rule. The description of Bomb becoming more gracious, I thought that was kind of vague. Well, the quote at the end of the movie is saying specifically that he never said I told you so to people. Okay. Meaning that he just, he didn't run around acting like I was right, you were all wrong. True. But he probably just was rolling on a bed of money. Yeah, I know. I feel like that would have been more the Christian Bale character. Well, that was a quote from Bomb's wife, though. Yeah, Why I would know. she be talking about Christian Bale? No, character? I know. I just when you have these parts at the end where it's saying what happened to everybody, it's all very factual. Like this person went on to this, and this, and then for Bomb, well, he became more gracious. Well, he was like a big, loudmouth, outspoken personality yeah. the whole movie. Okay, so it changed him. Yeah, he didn't run around with that attitude, right. In victory, because I think the point of the quote is saying that like he did not revel in his success. He thought that it was fucked up and is sad, basically. Totally. I think is what yep, they're saying. Okay. He didn't take it as a big victory lap, which right. he could have, I guess. Yeah. When the dust settled from the collapse, $5 trillion in pension money, real estate value, 401k, savings and bonds had disappeared. 8 million people lost their jobs. 6 million lost their homes. And that was just in the United States as the ripple effects were felt worldwide, obviously. And then the government bailed out the banks because what else could they do? However, the bailout is not actually the most disturbing part to me because as Jeremy Strong's character points out, what could they really do at that point? Yeah. Because if you get to a point where people cannot withdraw money from the banks, then you are on the verge of an entire societal collapse because people will stop working. People will stop following the law. I know. You can't just not have people's money. So I get where the bailout came from. The problem I have is that in the wake of the bailout, they didn't really add any regulations. You're going to find out from what happens in dumb money, the SEC still is not really controlling anything or doing anything. And, at the end of this film, they're telling you, yeah, well, the banks are pretty much just doing what they did before. They're just calling it something else. So get ready. It'll probably happen yeah. again someday. <laughs> I know. And the reason it'll happen again is because there were no consequences. If nobody gets in trouble, why would they stop doing it? It is nuts. And it is disturbing. And I remember when the pandemic for COVID was starting, I can remember like being sent home. Everybody's going home to work. Everything's being like shut down. I can remember driving home just being like, man, are we heading into pandemonium? Well, there it, definitely was a few times it was close. People like stop believing in the system. Well, I still think that's a pretty real possibility. Yeah. That we're still in that direction. I kind of feel that way a little bit too, and it is terrifying. Yeah, we're headed into an election year next year. It'll probably be pretty crazy. <laughs> Not to get everyone riled up but i'm sure it'll be a mess so yeah very uplifting topic yeah thank you to justin this was one that i think several of our listeners had mentioned over the years either as a potential listener request if they gave me four or five or something or i've seen other listeners mention it from time to time so i expect people wanted to hear us do it it's kind of a hard movie for us to talk about because we don't know any of this (laughs) I'm reading words that I don't know exactly what they mean, and I wouldn't be able to answer questions about what I just said. I know. I think I have as good of an understanding as I can have, and it's not going to go much further than that. 
Yeah, and I don't even know that as a viewer it really matters beyond the fact that the system is rigged, it's fucked up, there's no morality, there's no ethics, and then the people who are moving our money or who are responsible for this money do not care <laughs> about you at all. And so you construct these house of cards that eventually will collapse, and as Mark Baum puts it, it does seem to be the lower income, lower economic people, people who are at the bottom, who have to foot the bill, who get hit the hardest when these things happen. It's grim. It really is. <laughs> if you have a listener request, jump in. Be a part of the party. Greatestpod at gmail.com. At greatestpod on X slash Twitter. Hit us up there. We're going to get into the big listener request rundown shortly. Mm. Any questions, comments, concerns, greatestpod at gmail.com. $50 will get you a movie up to two and a half hours. If you'd See, like something that runs a little longer, we might have to go to 75 Even that figure doesn't seem like it's appropriate with inflation now. No, it's definitely low for the amount of hours that we put into this. It's crazy low. I know, but when we first decided on 50 I'm like, man, this is nuts. Nobody's going to pay that. Now I'm like, 50 bucks. Whew, you might be getting a cheeseburger for 50 bucks. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Since we already did email, we're just going to do recommendations really quick. Do you have one? Yeah. Actually, I'll do one that I watched it a few weeks ago. Weirdly, John Magaro is in it, okay. which is a guy that seemed familiar when I watched this, but it's weird that in the following weeks, I've watched two other movies with him in it, and I don't know that there would be another one. That seems to happen to me sometimes, yeah. where you just randomly lock into somebody that is really out of the blue. I watched Past Lives, I think as a streaming rental. I'd see it pop up on all sorts of best of the year yeah. lists. I did really like it. Not going to be my number one movie of the year or anything. Kind of a sentimental, romantic story that takes over, takes place over the course of several years. Written and directed by, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Celine Song, her debut movie. I do think it's really good. It's a strong, powerful movie, but it's not probably quite weird enough for me to be a top of the year, but it is really well done, and I do think that you'll continue to see positive buzz about it. Where is it available? I think I rented it off Prime. Okay. Probably just a streaming rental. Yeah. I went ahead and ordered Dumb Money on pay-per-view because obviously it's tied in with what's going on in The Big Short. When it was released this year, it brought The Big Short and The Wolf of Wall Street back into prominence. People were talking about these things again, because during the pandemic, a guy who posted on Reddit, the subreddit Wall Street Bets, started talking about buying GameStop stock because he was seeing that a major hedge fund was up trying to short the stock of GameStop, essentially predicting that it would go under, and they were betting the insurance. Dumb money is basically the opposite direction of the big short. Whereas the people in the big short are trying to short the stock, what's happening in dumb money is they're, they're squeezing, I guess is the terminology, the short. Oh, yeah, right. They're going the other direction where because of the sudden interest in the GameStop stock, the price started going way up, 
which fucked over the people betting on its demise. They're paying these huge premiums. The premiums go through the roof, oh, obviously. Yeah. Because all of a sudden this thing is worth so much more and is not on the verge of collapse. The story is told through a bunch of different perspectives. This main guy, he goes by Roaring Kitty, I think was one of his usernames. He look he gets actually compared to Luke Wilson in the Royal Tenenbaums in the movie. Somebody <laughs> says that about him because he's got that like weird long hair and he sometimes wears a headband. Okay. That sort of looks like the bomber. And he is sort of a, a goofy guy. He's played by Paul Dano. Shailene Woodley is in it. Pete Davidson is in it. Seth Rogen. Okay. Sebastian Stan. It is kind of like the big short in that I would describe it as more infotainment, although it is focused primarily on this one guy, so you do know about his sister who died. It's insinuated that she died from COVID. I don't know if that's actually what she died from. It doesn't really say, but Clancy Brown plays his dad. It's fine. Craig Gillespie directed it he did i Tanya. he was involved with pam and tommy he's done a, a bunch of stuff some of it is really good i liked i Tanya a lot pam and tommy we talked about it on the show at one point i was kind of let down by it although i don't know that it was necessarily just his baby he didn't even direct the final four episodes and all that so who knows but it ended up kind of being a dumb show in my opinion dumb money is nowhere near as good as the big short or the wolf of wall street which are working at a completely different level and I don't know that there's enough for a full movie. You kind of get the whole point pretty quick, and it's a lot of waiting just to get I, to I, where he testifies in front of Congress. I would suspect that. Yeah, because he's just an outsider. He's basically only knows a little bit more than me and Matt about this stuff. Well, he knows a lot more, but you know what I'm saying. He's not involved with anything. He just sort of jumped on. And then I guess there is a little bit of tension in the fact that he's being accused of manipulating the stock market, which is technically illegal to plan it out with a bunch of people that right. are going to yeah. artificially inflate a stock. But he was always pretty careful with his disclaimers because he posted all this shit in real time on YouTube and Reddit and stuff where he would post videos and talk about what was going on. And that did inspire a following. And this is why this happened. People obviously saw what he was doing. They bought it too. And then as the hedge funds start getting fucked, they're like, trying to do everything they can to drive the price down so that they'll sell it. They get fucked over by Robinhood, the trader app. Yep. They get fucked over by Reddit. They get fucked over by so many people trying to stop them from winning because they figured out a way to win the stock market, which is what the big banks don't want. It is a compelling underdog story, but they rushed into it. This just happened. R- totally. And it was a movie right. with Paul Dano and Seth Rogen and all this stuff. I kind of think they should have let it sit Yes, you could argue that people would have forgot this happened, but so what? I think you can still make a compelling movie down the line and and think about it a little bit more because it just didn't seem like there was enough there to take it to that next level. Enjoyable, but not great. There we go. So before we wrap up, listener requests. Nobody's really been beating our door down about this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. As of right now, we have six slots left for 2024. However... If we hit the calendar into 2024 and we get no more, it will drop to two, which I know sounds weird, but based on where we have some of them. So keep that in mind, and the price for those two would then go up to $100 because that's the new price next year. End of story. If you have submitted a listener request and you do not hear yourself on this list, that means I have forgotten you or you've slipped through the cracks. You need to reach back out because I don't have it on our schedule right now. I think this is everyone, though. But if not, please.
please reach out greatestpod at gmail.com at greatestpod on x slash twitter coming up in december aaron january aaron and steven february sarah and chris s march chris k and martha april theodore and keith may aaron again and rj july believe it or not aaron again (laughs) aaron is now probably our number one listener he went a little crazy so right there, if we don't get any more, that would stop with July with Aaron. I just want everyone to understand. We will drop to one per month. Okay. Do but right noted. now, that second July slot is still open. All right. August, completely open. That's two more. We're up to three. September, another one from Aaron. <laughs> this <laughs> Believe is it nuts. or not. Yeah, there needed to be a cap. We're, we're grateful, Aaron. No, no, there's no cap. <laughs> if somebody wants to buy the rest of the slots, that's up to them. I don't All care. Right. What difference does it make who's giving the listener requests? <laughs> The reason why Aaron has one in July and one in September is the September one is very specifically a fall movie. I wanted it there. Okay. But I'm still sticking to my old rules. So that, again, September would only have one as well, and then two in December are still available. If we get to the end, then we would just have August 1, December 1, and we would cross off July and September. You don't need to worry about any of that, though. All you need to know is if you have one, get it in before the end of the year. If we even maxed out those six and we don't record a new episode to tell them, I would probably still try to work it in. So if you have one, I don't think we're going to get seven more, Matt, so don't panic. <laughs> that seems very unlikely. <laughs> okay. I don't know. They come in waves. Well, I would be fine with it because yeah. I've got it mapped out. But okay. I'm just saying you have this window, and then once we get into 2024, we're not going to be as receptive and there's just not going to be as many slots. I want everyone to know that I'm going to start saying it a lot more just so that people aren't surprised when they reach out and are told, no, 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 we're not doing that now. We're so close for business. Yeah. Anything else? Greatestpod at gmail.com at greatestpod on X slash Twitter. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Give us a rating and review on Apple podcasts. We would love to hear from you during this christmas season we have another listener request coming up soon so hold on to your butts for that if you'd like a free sticker or anything else from us you know where to find us and letterboxd zach 1983 and matt crosby that'll probably be the last time we mention letterboxd maybe so this big short episode will be monumental for that (laughs) that's true plus we did an email at the beginning you never know totally things are all over the place we've made it special justin Aaron, if you'd like to get one in for your listener request that's coming up with an explanation, you got to get it in quick, though, because by the time you hear this, we might be recording right away. So <laughs> we're getting in there. But you have a lot coming up, too. So if you want to get your email in later, that's fine. Yeah. You got a lot of listener requests. Other power listeners, if you heard that and are jealous now because you want to be number one listener, yeah. hey, you at- heard about the slots. <laughs> you know what to do. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon.
I was at the library and I forgot to look at the clock. Do you think I'm an idiot? Huh? Do you think I don't know where you've been? What do you mean? You think I wouldn't recognize the signs? Clean fingernails, good posture, cookie crumbs in your pockets. You're never hungry at dinner time. You're seeing another mom. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't lie to me! It's not what you think. Who is she? Why does that matter? Who is she? Mrs. Finnegan. It doesn't mean anything. A couple of weeks ago, I stopped by her house and she had her iron out. She was just so nice. And there was cake. That'll be a long time before you get any cake around here. I wasn't expecting any. After everything I've sacrificed for you, all I've done, you come waltzing in here day after day reeking of her fabric softener. Yes, I like fabric softener. Mrs. Finnegan doesn't mind taking a little time to stop the rinse cycle. And maybe it's nice to have someone who's got more to say to me than just clean your room, comb your hair, da 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 Do you love her? Of course not. It's just snacks. Oh, you like her snacks. You like filling up on her cookies. You know they're store-bought. That's beneath you, Mom.